uh, this year at church has been one for renovations. Uh, perhaps you've noticed. Uh, here and at Petersham, buildings that are more than 100 years old are being stripped back and rebuilt. Sometimes it's a sand and a coat of paint. Sometimes new foundations are added to support old foundations. Uh, and sometimes the old is knocked down and completely replaced with something fresh and strong and purpose-built. Old, flickering electrical fittings replaced with new safe ones. Rotten bearers and joists replaced with new strong ones. Leaking tiles, rusting tin replaced with new, painted, waterproof roofing. Dirty, old, smelly, leaking bathrooms replaced with clean, dry, shiny ones. And I don't know whether you're like me, but my old body is starting to feel a little like the old buildings. A few more cracks, foundation sagging, gravity taking its toll, things not working as well as they used to, bits breaking down, having to be repaired, other bits looking tired and maybe needing a freshen up. Unfortunately, it's a sad fact of life. Nothing will change until Jesus returns when he promises to do a knockdown rebuild on our broken down bodies as well as for the whole creation. And we'll get brand new, perfected, glorious bodies. It's a distinctive Christian hope among the world religions. Jesus doesn't just save our souls, he's redeemed our bodies as well. Eternity won't be about leaving behind the physical world, leaving behind our bodies and floating around like angels on clouds. That's not eternity. There'll be a restoration. Jesus promises new eternal bodies that are still physical. They're made of stuff, but yet with none of the pain and the brokenness that we put up with now. And we will be just one part of a perfected physical eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, which we'll think about in a couple of weeks. It's a belief that says something unique about this world as well as the next. You see, it says that God's physical world, this world we live in now, is both good and broken. It's good since that's the way God made it in the beginning. He declared on the sixth day, this is very good. It's full of physical, enjoyable things that God enjoys as well. And so this whole world is is not a failure that's broken and God's going to just completely get rid of the whole thing. He's going to restore it. Eternity will be physical because a physical world is good. But on on the other hand, this is also a broken world. It's one that's been ravaged by sin. The physical world needs mending and transforming and restoring. We're up to week four of our series on eternity. We began with death, when our souls will either be with Christ or in a place of punishment until Jesus' return. Then Jesus will return and he'll set things right. And one thing that that means of setting things right will be receiving eternal resurrected bodies. And the interesting thing is the Bible does talk about how everyone will be resurrected, uh, either resurrected for judgement and eternal separation from God 
or resurrected for life and an eternal home with God. We're going to focus mostly on two passages, the 1 Corinthians 15 we read, but we're also going to flick across to 1 Thessalonians 4, which is another 20 pages or so on in your Bibles and you may like to stick a thumb or a finger there as well. We'll actually begin in 1 Thessalonians 4, so maybe flip over there and stick the finger into 1 Corinthians 15. In Thessalonians, the issue for Paul's readers uh, was that uh, a number of them seemed to have lost a family member or a loved one and they wanted to know that everything would be alright for that family member. They wanted to know that death was not the end, that there was hope, that there was knowledge and hope. And that's quite different from what we often see in the world, isn't it, uh, when we go to funerals. The attitude we often see in the face of death is hopeless despair. Uh, Death is just so big, uh, too dark, too powerful, too final to be argued with. There's a hopelessness about it. Uh, That's the honest people at funerals. But then you've also got the ostriches at funerals, those that want to put their heads in the sand and pretend death is something that it's not. And they have some vague, uninformed, wishful thinking about death, which is not hope either, is it? Uh, They say things like, I'm just trying to think positive thoughts. Or they say, I'd like to think he's up there looking down on me. Well, that's not hope, is it? And it's certainly not knowledge. But Jesus offers us neither of those. Neither is right. Jesus has been raised first as a guarantee for our resurrection. So have a look at how Paul begins this teaching on Jesus' return. This is his motivation. 1, Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Christians can know what's on the other side And because of that, we don't need to mourn hopelessly. When you understand what Jesus promises, death doesn't need to hold that mind-numbing threat anymore. We can move out of ignorance and we can know. We can move out of hopeless grief and we can have a confident hope of a sure future, both for us as well as for those who've died. So where does that come from? What's the basis for that confident hope? Well, Paul says it's the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. That historical event is the foundation. Testified testified to by hundreds of witnesses, It may go against human understanding. After all, dead people just don't rise. But as much as you can prove anything that happened in history, you can prove the resurrection. It's got a solid basis for happening as anything in history. That's where the Christian confidence comes from, the confidence that if Jesus has been raised, then he has the power to raise those who belong to him, who are connected to him, who are in him. That other passage we're looking at, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses 
an image from farming to make the same point. He talks about first fruits. When that first box of cherries hits Flemington Markets, it's a big deal. It's auctioned for charity. There's lots of attention. It used to be in the papers. I'm not sure it's in the papers anymore. But there's media coverage. There's a huge crowd. It's the first fruits. And it signals the start of summer fruit. Where there's one box of cherries, there's the expectation of more to come. And Jesus is the first fruits of a whole bunch more of resurrected people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. One follows as a logical consequence from the other. Christ raised first, he punches the way through from death to life, he breaks down the door and so that when he returns, those who are connected to him, who belong to him, will also follow. They'll be raised. It's guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. Let's think a little more about what the Bible says about the specifics. And uh, as I've been in a couple of Bible study groups and we've looked at this, um, people have sort of one or two, one of two reactions. One is, I don't really know, but that's all right. That's okay. And then there are other people that say, I don't quite get it. What's it, what's it going to be like? You know, how? What? What are the specifics? Uh, now, the Bible doesn't give us all the answers, but it does give us some. Uh, back over in the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage. Uh, there in verse 15, and it talks about two groups of people, two groups of Christians. Firstly, there are those Christians who've died before Jesus' return. And then secondly, there'll be Christians who are still alive when he returns. And what's described is resurrection for both those groups, but in a slightly different way. Verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see the two groups? And here's what will happen to them. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the dead. They'll be resurrected. Jesus will bring the souls of those who've fallen asleep and then wrap them around a new, raised, perfected physical body. And then the Christians who are still alive, who are witnessing all of this, verse 17, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, with the dead in Christ, resurrected dead in Christ, uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What comes after that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Come back in a couple of weeks when we look at the new heaven and the new earth. But at the moment... Uh, what we're thinking about is resurrection, we'll all be raised. So that's the order, the dead first and then the living. But what about what happens to that second group? What does that look like? What does it mean to, to have a physical body and then somehow that's changed into 
an eternal glorified body. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, flip over there again. We read in verse 51, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. See, once again, there's that, those two groups, some who sleep and others who, don't need to, who won't sleep, but they'll still be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, or trump, as Stu likes, uh, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's the first group. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. They're those who don't need to be brought back from the dead because they're still alive. They'll still be changed. Uh, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, mortal with immortality, and the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that's written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So the, the couple of Bible studies I was in during the week, uh, people could sort of get their heads around the, the idea of resurrection, of uh, those who are asleep uh, in Christ, their bodies are in the dust and the dust comes up and, and bodies are our bodies are formed and souls are connected with them and they're resurrected. But for those of us who are still living, what's that look like? Well, Paul says, we'll be changed, transformed. Verse 53 seems to describe it something like putting on a new jacket over the top of the existing clothes you're wearing. Mortality being clothed with immortality. Perhaps it'll be something like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon or one of those time-lapse films of a plant that grows from the seed, changing from a seed into a full-grown plant within a few seconds. It's this image of a seed changing into a plant Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think it helps us as a picture understand something of the difference between the body we have now compared to the body we had then. He's been asked the question, or there's the rhetorical question, what will the resurrected body be like, verse 35? And he answers, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of weed or of something else, but God gives it a body as he's determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So what he's saying is, don't worry too much about whether this body, how it will be connected to that body, because a seed and a plant have sort of not much in common at all, really. And the new plant can only come to life when the seed dies. And yet there's still that continuity. There's a connection They're made from the same stuff. They're similar and not similar, seed and plant. And it will be something like that with our bodies. The old body will die and the new body will come alive, will be changed. So what will it be like? How will it compare to the old body? Well, there'll be some similarity and there'll be some dissimilarity. It's like a seed and a plant. If Jesus' resurrected body is anything to go by, our new bodies will look like our old ones. And uh, the inevitable question was asked in these Bible study groups during the week, at what age 
it'd be nice if it was 21, wouldn't it? I think a few people were saying. But we just don't know, do we? Uh, And Janet was able to say, I don't know, but let's just trust God. (laughs) Uh, If Jesus' body is anything to go by, they'll look something like our old bodies. But there'll also be differences. Uh, Paul goes on to talk about how there's all different sorts of bodies uh, and he's thinking about uh, creation in general, in a bigger sense. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. There are different sorts of splendour with the different bodies. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another and the stars another. Star differs from star in splendour. And then he says that's the same with our bodies. So will it be at the resurrection of the dead. Different sorts of splendour. The the body that's sown is perishable, raised imperishable, sown in dishonour, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual or spirit-powered body. So that'll be one difference. Our bodies will will have a difference of splendour. Our new body will be will have more splendour than our existing body, more mag- magnificence, more glory. Uh, like the difference between the splendour of the sun compared to a tiny speck of a star. Uh, your new body will be the sun, imperishable, glorious, powerful, rather than the opposite. If the old body was like Adam, the first earthly man, then your new body will be like Jesus the first heavenly man. Verse 49 says that, just as we've borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Our bodies at the moment bear the scars of Adam, the effects of Adam's sin and the effects that Adam's sin has on the world are what we're bearing in our bodies. Sickness and cancer and weaknesses, weak wills, corrupted desires, Ageing, heart attacks, strokes, knee replacements. Uh, Our bodies are groaning to be set free along with the rest of creation. But that's the body of Adam. Our new bodies will bear the likeness of Jesus, the perfect human, the only one who bears God's image perfectly. Mind, speech, desires, priorities, attitudes, with none of the physical or mental weaknesses or frailties or pain. It really is something to long for. Well, that's the promise. That's the hope the Christian has, the promise guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. So what about the so what question? That's the, that's the, the theology. What about the practical? What does it mean? For you today and tomorrow, what does it motivate you to be living like? Well, the most obvious motivation, I think, is to make sure that you belong to Jesus, that you're connected to him, so that all of these promises apply to you. Do you know Jesus? If you were to die tonight, would you be confident that when you stand before him and God says, why should I let you into heaven, your answer would be, because I know Jesus. I'm connected to him. He's died for me. That's the first thing these truths motivate us for. Have a listen, have a listen to what Jesus himself says about how we should respond. John 5, 24. 
John 5.24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The first thing you should be motivated to do is to make sure you hear and believe Jesus, that you trust him, trust that he's dealt with sin and death, that he's beaten them and that he promises to beat them for those who follow. That's how you can make sure that when you die and you hear the voice of the Son of God from your grave that you'll be raised for eternity with him. Well, second thing, uh, second so what? We should be courageous. That's the way it worked for Paul. That's the reading Nora began with. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 30. Paul says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every day if death is it? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Did you catch the logic? The reason Paul is putting his life at risk, the reason he says it all, uh, his life counts for nothing, uh, the reason he dies to his own desires and comforts every day is because there's a greater prize. Nothing compares to that prize. Nothing else matters. What risk is there when you're risking a poor, broken, fading body for the sure hope of a better, pure, glorified one. There's no risk at all. You've got nothing to lose and you've got everything to gain. So be courageous. That's his logic. What's the worst that can happen when you're courageous? Well, people can tease you. You might lose a job or a friend. You might do without a few things. You may even be killed for following Jesus. So what? We look forward to a much greater treasure, a much greater joy. Uh, Jim Elliot, some of you have heard these words before, I've quoted them a bit. Jim Elliot, the American missionary, believed these truths. He died for these truths. Before he was martyred by cannibals, he wrote in his diary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's an easy trade. Give your life, you can't keep your life anyway and you'll gain eternity which you can't lose. The third thing these passages teach us is that we should be encouraged. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 After that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Us, people we know, Christians who've died, we have a sure, glorious future. That, that's encouraging. Let's remind ourselves of those things. Let's encourage each other. And one final, so what? Uh, Philippians 3.20 says we should stand firm. Stand firm. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies 
so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. How? This is how you should stand firm. Remember where your true citizenship lies. Remember that everything that lures and distracts you here is fading, rusting, breaking down, disappointing. None of it will last. Remember all of that. But our sure and certain hope, our destiny, will be glorious bodies, resurrected with Jesus, transformed by him, the one who controls everything by his power. If that is all true, then stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord in the face of all of those things which speak against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. Uh, For some of us, the the shadow uh, of death is darker than for others and uh, these words hold much greater comfort. But wherever we are in terms of our closeness, uh, the impact uh, of of death on us, uh, we thank you for the sure and certain hope that they bring, the sure and certain hope that Jesus' resurrection brings us. We pray that we might live appropriately in response to these truths, that we might uh, be confident, that we might encourage each other, that we might stand firm, uh, that we might make sure we tell others about Jesus and the hope that they can have too and that we might do it all for his honour and glory. Amen.